Are you a good negotiator? Former FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss spent his career navigating life-or-death negotiations. He says many of the skills he used while communicating with bank robbers and terrorists can even apply to your relationships with your kids, your significant other, and your career. Ready for better tools? Listen in. Hi, Chris. Hi, Marissa. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. I hope so. Hope uh, I don't put you to sleep. <laughs> I don't think so. So you are a former hostage negotiator. Yes. Now turned best-selling author yep. and business consultant and yeah. advisor. Yeah. I read your book. It's fascinating. Thank you. My team has been asking who they think would be a better negotiator, you or me. So we're going to have to find out. All right. Very good. <laughs> I'm betting on you. <laughs> so Who could collaborate uh, the best? We could collaborate for yeah, sure. That's, yeah, that's what great negotiation is, collaboration. I love it. You know, what's interesting to me is that you had a very specific career, which you were very focused on. It's a big career, being a hostage negotiator for the FBI. Right. And at one point in your life, you reinvented yourself and started a new career in some ways. How did you do that? Because I think there are a lot of people who have a first career and then struggle with figuring out what to do next. And you, know, you did this masterfully. Yeah, well, masterfully uh, takes a long time. I always wanted to go into business for myself. My father was a sole proprietor, entrepreneur, small town, uh, Iowa, uh, ran his own business. And I always wanted that after I got out of the government. So I always, I always had my eye on that. I always thought I took a very entrepreneurial approach to everything I did when, when I was a cop or when I was an FBI agent. And actually, one of, one of my uh, buddies in New York who was on the hostage negotiation team, Charlie, once said that being an FBI agent was the ultimate entrepreneur's job. And that was, that was my mindset. I always wanted to be very entrepreneurial. So whenever I got out, it was always my intention to try my hand at starting my own business. That ended up being a lot harder than I expected. And being in the public sector versus the private sector, you know, they look at each other and they go like, I can understand what's going on over there. And they don't. The private sector does not understand how to be successful in the public sector, and vice versa. People in the public sector do not understand how to be successful. And a private sector probably has two aspects. You know, the corporate, which is much more bureaucratic, and the entrepreneurial. And I wanted to learn how to be an entrepreneur, and it's taken quite a while, and I'm still trying to figure it out. How did you figure out that some of the skills that you built as a hostage negotiator are so relevant to business? That was the easy part because it's human interaction. Like when I first volunteered on a crisis hotline last century, which I had to do to become a hostage negotiator, it just struck me that the skills had to be applicable to personal life, consequently, subsequently business. So I started using them. I, I, I remember thinking, you know, this thing called empathy. Why should it just be for somebody in crisis? You know, if you can accelerate somebody's decision-making in crisis, why can't you just use it in your personal life, in your business interaction? So I started using it in every aspect of my life and learning about how to adapt and adjust and, and make mistakes. It applies to wherever humans make decisions, period, under no other res restriction. It doesn't matter the stakes that are involved. It doesn't matter who's involved. When, when I first went through Harvard Law School's negotiation course, while I was still with the FBI, you know, the, the people there that were very smart and right said, you're doing the same thing we are. The stakes are different, but the dynamics are the same. So I think I discovered it as an idea way back when on the suicide island. <laughs> Incredible. Talk about what tactical empathy is, because that's the main golden nugget in, in, in your book, right? Right. Yeah, well, it's the active application, even a proactive application of empathy, a demonstration of understanding. Most definitions of empathy, if I agree with the definition, first of all, it's not sympathy, it's not compassion. Okay. Empathy is a very compassionate thing to do. You know, a friend of mine, Stephen Kotler, wrote, empathy is about the transmission of information. Compassion is the reaction to that transmission. So it's a compassionate thing to do, but it's not compassion. So first of all, if you just define it as really understanding where the other side's coming from. 
not where you wish they were coming from, where they really are coming from. And then articulating it. Most definitions of empathy don't require you to say it out loud. You know, seeing it from their perspective. There's nothing in that definition that calls for you to articulate it. And even Goleman's, Daniel Goleman's definition of cognitive empathy, which is really close to tactical empathy, he doesn't say anything about you expressing it out loud. Hmm. Now, the first time I really came across with outside of the FBI expressing it out loud, um, Bob Mnookin wrote a book called Beyond Winning. Mnookin was uh, the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard. It's one of the first people I interacted with up there. He calls it the empathy loop, where you basically, what you think the other person's perspective is, you express it to them, and then they either tell you you're right, they say that's right, or they adjust, and then it becomes a loop of feedback of understanding. And I remember reading that, saying like, he sees it the same way the FBI does, because we needed to express it. Mm. You know, many people think empathy is, if I see your perspective, then that'll simply inform my argument. Mm -hmm. I'll make a better argument. I'll make a better pitch. Well, there's an intervening step that you haven't checked to see if you're right. And that's, that's expressing it. Now, why do I call it tactical? Where'd that come from? Some of it was to get people that didn't want to be empathic to use it. Like if they, if empathy is soft, if it's weak and it's not, but if they're scared of it, because they don't want to be soft, they try to teach Navy SEALs, meditation or box breathing and the seals are like we're not doing that you know it's not tough (laughs) so then they took the meditative breathing and they called it tactical breathing right and the seals go yeah we'll do that right it's the same thing right those of us who are running businesses don't want to do something that's not not weak i can't can't be weak i gotta be tactical yeah and and then since i really coined the term before i knew much about neuroscience But I've tried to learn as much as I can, not being a scientist. Let's tactically apply empathy to the way neuroscience tells us the brain works. And by and large, a layman's definition is the brain is 75% negative, number one. Your default mode of being is survival. And the caveman survived by being pessimist. The optimistic caveman got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. The pessimist was like, hey, my buddy got eaten by that tiger yesterday. I'm staying away from him. Our survival mode, which is not success thinking, survival thinking is negative. And the neuroscientists pretty much back us up on that. They don't like how I got there, but they don't disagree with my conclusion. Then if your brain is 75% negative, what do I do about it? Do I pitch the positive? Well, that's an uphill battle. The faster move is to deactivate the negative. Mm. So then neuroscience also tells us how to deactivate the negative by calling it out, calling out the elephant in the room. Don't deny the elephant in the room. Don't ignore the elephant in the room. If I'm getting ready to say something that I know you're not going to like, instead of me saying, look, I don't want this to sound disrespectful, that's a denial of the elephant in the room. Instead, if I say, it's going to sound disrespectful, you'll listen, and I will have deactivated that negative reaction. So there's a two-millimeter shift Mm. to simply calling something out. And the neuroscience backs that up. Mm. So how do we apply neuroscience to our communication? That's what tactical empathy is about. Can you give me an example of where you use tactical empathy and you found it to be impactful? Sure. First, those small-stakes interactions. Uh, I'm in Whole Foods the other day, and I also like to leave people better than I found them. I don't, I don't want to leave friction behind me. So I order up the salmon, and a guy weighs it and packages it and gets it all ready and puts the, uh, the sticker on it, and I see a different bunch of salmon than I want, and I don't want the salmon that he just went through all this trouble of making for me. So he's going to swap it out anyway, but I don't want him thinking I'm a jerk I don't want him being more negative for the next person that's coming along. Plus, I want him to do this as quickly as possible. I would like to have an instantaneous compliance versus, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? I'm a very time-oriented person. So I look at this guy and I go like, look, man, 
I'm going to seem like a complete jerk. I don't want that salmon anymore. I want this salmon. He goes, oh, okay. And he just pops it out of the bag, throws a bag away, doesn't bat an eye, quickly swaps me out, and I'm on my way. Because I know that if he's just done what I've asked him to do, and suddenly now I'm this bozo who wasn't paying attention and realized that uh, 12 inches away was the salmon I really wanted, he's going to be annoyed. I'm going to leave him in a negative place. And and at least he's going to delay swapping me out. And the next person's going to have to pay for this. So I've just made a negative deposit in the karma bank. Instead, I want to get swapped out as quickly as possible, move on my way. What's his reaction? This guy's a jerk. Mm. So what do I do? I call it out in advance. Look, I know I'm going to seem like a complete jerk. He doesn't bat an eye and he swaps me right out. It works every time. Wow. Like it works every time. How did you learn that from hostage negotiations? Well, I, I learned it from the suicide hotline, you know, and, and there's a bit of an infamous phrase. <laughs> like, if I need you to comply right now, and I cannot waste time on your negative pushback, what I need to go is I need to go as deep as possible with a label for me so that you don't go there. And I learned from labeling on a, a suicide hotline, you just call a negative out. So I'm, I'm getting ready. I got to put a witness on a stand in less than 24 hours. Very high profile case in New York City, terrorism case. Okay. Witnesses, for a variety of reasons, have gotten kicked out of their hotel. The Southern District of New York, whoever was handling, you know, they're handling witness accommodations. Like in the middle of the night, these people are out on the street in New York City. In a, uh, New York City is always a little dodgy, and this is a very dangerous time of the year. I mean, these guys literally call me from a payphone saying, we got kicked out of our hotel. We're going home right now. And they're going to leave. This guy's not going to get on the stand the next day. I'm like, all right, stay where you're at. You know, you probably, there's probably a corner grocery store where you're at. Go in there. There is. Go in there. You'll be safe. I'm going to get a police car out to you. NYPD, I got a, some friends. They call right away. They scoop these guys up. They take them to the precinct. Precinct detective unit. This is one o'clock in the morning. This guy's supposed to be on the stand 9 a.m. the following morning, which means he ain't happy. I would, how would you feel getting kicked out of the hotel? Plus, they're upstairs with the NYPD precinct detectives, which are a tough, hard-boiled group. One of the hardest jobs in the world is to be a precinct detective mm-hmm. with the NYPD. Tough schedule. They've seen everything. They're not a fan of feds. I'm walking into this, ain't anybody happy with the FBI, and they sure not happy with Chris Voss. You know, I walk in, desk sergeant, hey, Chris Voss, FBI. He goes, I know who you are. They're upstairs waiting for you. Great. This doesn't sound good. I walk into the room. They're sitting there with the precinct detectives. I don't know what they're saying, but they're not singing the praises of the FBI. Now, I do not have time to screw around with these people. We got to get rolling. And this guy has already told me he's not testifying. So I got to get him to testify. And I walk into the room. It go, room goes dead silent. They stare at me. And I go, Chris Voss is an asshole. <laughs> okay. And the witness who has already told me he's going home and he's not testifying goes, all right, so you're a good salesman. I moved him to the next hotel. They got about 45 minutes sleep. The guy got on the stand happily the next morning and was a star on the stand. And I knew what they either were saying about me in their heads or they were getting ready to say. So I went the whole way and it deactivated every single negative thought. So I got to ask. Have there, have you had any experiences where it didn't go your way? I can't imagine that it's if I, you always know, if I miss, right? uh, it'll, it'll not go your way either if you miss a mark, um, if you try to pull your punches. Mm. If you're genuinely applying empathy and the other side won't let it land, and that happens, what they're telling you is they're never going to collaborate. And they're probably always intended to victimize you. And so they put up an armor against empathy. They don't want the empathy to land. So it's not that it doesn't 
not work. It might give me an answer I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And I got to read the answer. You know, empathy is a diagnostic. Empathy is a way to reason. It's a way to think something through. It's a way to have a hypothesis. So if, if I lead with empathy and you won't let it land, that actually tells me a lot about you. And I need to know that information. Right. So empathy is somewhat of information gathering. Empham- absolutely. It so you might gather an information that the negotiation may just not work out, but that's part of what you need to figure out. So it's not that you it always goes your way. Right. It's just you, you at least get to clarity. Yeah. And, and an example from the book. One of the more famous phrases is a, from a story at the very beginning of the book where the answer is, how am I supposed to do that? Somebody asks you to do something really ridiculous. You know, my son Brandon calls this question forced empathy. If I say, how am I supposed to do that? That's designed to make you look at me mm-hmm. and assess my situation. How am I supposed to do that is really an implementation question. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get you to recognize that what you asked me to do the implementation is either difficult or impossible. Right. And it works more than eight times out of 10 to immediately change the situation. What happens when it doesn't work? What does that tell you? Because it's so effective that if it doesn't work, most of the people are used to it magically changing things instantaneously. They say, well, I tried. How am I supposed to do that? And it didn't work. The other person says, that's your problem. I said, no, it's not that it didn't work. It just tells you that that person doesn't care about you at all. Hmm. You tried to get them to look at you and just assess your situation and see how hard it is. And the other person doesn't care. That's great information. Hmm. You need to know that the other person doesn't care about you at all. Right. One of the business people that I know used it in an interaction, his counterpart said, I don't care if you get fired over this deal. I don't care what happens to you. You either do it or I walk. Uh-huh. That person is telling you they're a horrible business partner. That's great information to have. You went from wondering if they're toxic to and knowing. knowing it. It's almost like a double-sided empathy, right? Because yes. like, when I first read your book, I think I understood that the idea is that we need to be empathetic and basically have tactical empathy towards the person that we're negotiating with. But when you say to them, well, how do you expect me to do it? You're actually trying to lead them to have empathy towards you as well. Is that right? Is this a mutual collaboration? Right. Has this worked in your personal life, let's say, with dating? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the real issue is, does the other person want to collaborate? Mm -hmm. Like, we, we want to collaborate with each other. My definition of negotiation in business relationships are long-term relationships of trust. Okay. So if that's the definition that you share, then we shouldn't be afraid to negotiate with each other because we're trying to establish a better relationship. We're trying to get to a better outcome collaboratively. If you're negotiating with somebody, you both face different aspects of the exact same problem, no matter what that is. If it's a dating interaction, the problem we're both faced with is we're looking for a significant other that we're highly compatible with. Mm-hmm. and that we match up our core values. We both want the same things. And that we're complementary, not the same. Right. Complementary. Because if two people in any relationship are the same, one of you is redundant. <laughs> so you should be complementary. Do we fit together? Can we, can we last together for the long term? Should we trust each other? Can we trust each other? So in, in, in a social relationship, yeah. You know, I, I want to find that out. And I want to find out, you know, can I trust you? Can I rely upon you? In a relationship I'm in right now with Wendy, we trust each other. We're on each other's side. I got her back. She's got my back. Now, the communication tools can be used to manipulate also the tools. So like a scalpel, a scalpel in one person's hand saves a life. Mm. In another person's hand, it's a murder weapon. Mm. The tool is not guilty. It's how the person is using it, what they're trying to accomplish. So obviously in every relationship, even somebody who is very, very compatible with you, you're going to have situations where you don't agree. Yeah. Even if you have the same values, I'm sure they're, yeah. well, okay, well, we're not, I'm not in the mood for salmon tonight. Sorry. Right. Yeah. How do you handle, I mean, you call your book, never split the difference, right. which to, to the listener, it sounds like you're not willing to compromise. 
Compromise uh, is a dirty word. I'm not willing to compromise. Yeah. So explain, explain how do you never split the difference when you're in a romantic relationship or in any relationship with someone where you do land in a situation where you don't really agree? Well, well sometimes she might be right. What happens if I'm completely wrong and she's completely right? If I want her to be willing to accept the opposite, mm. you know, if, if fairness is a two-way street, most people don't think of it as a two-way street. But the real definition of fairness is, is it a two-way street? The rules apply equally to both. That's fairness. Most people don't see it that way. Most people say fair, it's unfair when I'm at a disadvantage. Uh, that's a one-way definition. But if it's two-way, I got to be willing to accept that she is either completely right or between the two of us, we come up with a better idea. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. If you've got a different perspective than I do and you've reached a different outcome or a different conclusion, there's a pretty good chance you know something I don't know. Hmm. And if I knew that, if you trusted me enough to let me know, there's a really good chance I might change my mind and we'll either come to a better outcome or I'll see that you were completely right. One of my favorite negotiations, negotiation between a husband and a wife over a Christmas tree. Okay. What kind, artificial or real? Husband's in my class. And the people that used to, in the classes I used to teach, you had to write up papers about your real life negotiations. We didn't do simulations. Real life only. Okay. Don't try the skills in a pretend situation. Try it when you have something personally and professionally at stake. And then tell me how it went. So husband and wife, husband wants the artificial tree, wife wants a real tree. Husband's using the skills to try to get his way. Wife is not opening up. And one of our skills is a label. It seems like, sounds like, it looks like. It's a label. And he's trying to figure out why she's being so unreasonable. Because artificial tree's practical. Yeah. You know, it doesn't catch fire. You buy it once. The same thing every year. It's predictable. It's... The, you know, the dog doesn't mark it because of smell. The cat probably doesn't climb. But it, it doesn't smell good. Ah, now <laughs> we're getting to it. But he doesn't, he's not taking this into account. So he finally says to her, he's trying to figure out why she's crazy, right? Whenever somebody disagrees with you, of course. they're crazy. Correct. You're not the crazy one, they are. Yes. So he signs the label and he says, sounds like he had real trees growing up. Okay. And then she opens up and she says, yes. And the smell of a real tree reminds me of how close we were as children with my brothers and sisters. And I want our kids to have that same experience. And I bought a real tree. He was all in on a real tree once he heard her out and realized that her reasoning was much more in-depth and had much more significance. So never split the difference is also what happens if the other person's right and you're wrong. Yeah, it's like happy wife, happy life. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to that. But happy, happy spouse, period. Because if one right. person in a relationship is unhappy, then compromise is about loss. Hmm. There's no other way to define it. I give in, you give in, we both lose. Mm -hmm. It's lose-lose negotiations. And in human dynamics, Danny Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, I keep calling him Danny, although I admire and revere him. We're not friends. I wish we were. Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics 2002 Prospect Theory paraphrases loss things twice as much as an equivalent gain. So when I give, mm -hmm. I feel like I gave double. Mm -hmm. And I will feel a sense of loss until I inflict double the loss on you. Now, I give five, I'm not happy till I get 10 out of you. What happens when I get 10 out of you? You're not happy till you get 20 out of me. Mm -hmm. Compromise is a perfect formula for a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. Instead, collaborate together and find out how you can either reach a better outcome or realize that the other person that mm -hmm. might have had a better idea than you did in the first place. So much of this is about real proper communication, right? Yeah. And and really trying to understand uh, the person that you're working with, but not necessarily working against, right? Right. So 
Is it the same rules when it comes to males and females? I mean, do you think that women and men, I guess, compute these experiences somewhat differently? Men and women are nurtured differently. I'm unclear on the brain science as to whether or not there are actual differences. I've seen some things that might possibly indicate that there's slightly different differences. I haven't seen enough to convince me that it's significant. Men and women are nurtured very differently, and that's different than basic nature. And women, as a general rule, globally, are nurtured to be more emotionally aware sooner. Mm. Soft power. Because ultimately, regardless of the um, culture or geography, women are physically weaker than men. Mm-hmm. Now, they start out in life pretty much even. You know, right. little boys, little girls, pretty much the same physical abilities. And women get started in puberty sooner. So I remember when my son was in eighth grade, all the girls were taller than all the boys. Mm-hmm. But eventually, the boys are going to be more physically powerful than mm-hmm. the women. And adult women know this globally. And I think start schooling young girls on emotional intelligence at an earlier age. Mm-hmm. So there is a different nurtured computation for a variety of reasons regardless of the culture, just because of physical attributes that are inevitable. Usually men are, are, are nurtured to be more combative, mm. and women are nurtured to be more aware of the costs mm. of being combative. And even biologically, is it possible that women have an edge, given that generally women have a better sense of, I mean, I'm guessing, do women have a better sense of how to develop tactical empathy because, you know, biologically we're, we're made to have children, to rear children, to have empathy towards our children. Is it possible that those just biological traits that we might have in us can be helpful in that way? What we've seen consistently is women pick up tactical empathy faster than men do. I've seen more than enough evidence to see they pick it up faster. I haven't seen any evidence to show that they're better at it at the top end. I'm, mm. I'm completely gender agnostic at the top end. Women and men are equally phenomenal negotiators once they've developed into it. Doesn't matter what the gender is. I do know that women pick it up faster. Mm, fascinating. You know, as I was reading through your book, it, I couldn't help but take myself back to my years of being an educator and, and actually being in a classroom and running a school. Some of the things that you talk about, um, you know, labeling mirroring, active listening, those three things are things that I used to use when I was an actual teacher. Uh, It is so interesting to me, and I think the listeners would find this very, just how you define these terms, how do you apply these terms. Um, I, I remember that when running a classroom, one of the things when I would have a, a child throw a tantrum and they were just, they would just spiral out of control because of the, they would have all of these emotions and they wouldn't know how to handle those emotions. One of the first things that I would do is I would say, you know, Chris, I think this thing that just happened got you really upset, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. I labeled it and and packaged it for the child, mm-hmm. and in so many, that really just helped loosen them up and feel like there's somebody who understands them and is able to package it for them so that they can then process it. Right. Am I interpreting it in the right way? Well, good. you're just talking about good communication. And you're also talking about good communication when you said process it. You're trying to help those kids think. Mm. Like, you're you're not trying to be in control. You're trying to help them think so that they can cope with it better themselves. You're increasing their coping mechanisms. Like if your only goal was to keep control of the classroom, you'd handcuff them to their chairs and you put, you know, you put gags around them so they couldn't talk. <laughs> now, however tempting that might be, you developed a gun instinct as an educator that your job was to help them learn how to cope, which is a completely separate thing from trying to keep control of the classroom. Right. Consequently, a great subsequent secondary benefit is you, you've got far more calm in the classroom. Because they're learning how to cope with emotions and are learning how to think. So, and that was really your gut instinct approach when you were teaching. You you know, you weren't there just to keep the classroom quiet. You were there to help make them in the better people on their journey to becoming a human being. And and that's why there's so much overlap in what we're talking about. Can you explain mirroring? Can I explain mirroring? Mirroring. I feel like mirroring is also tied into this, right? Just the when it comes to behavior. 
oftentimes people just want to hear that they're being heard. And it's something that I would use in, in the classroom. Does that resonate with you at all? Well, thank you for willingly participating with me in a demonstration of mirroring. Okay. <laughs> and getting totally lost and trying to explain. No, because I mirrored you. And what you did was give me a great explanation of where you were coming from, which is exactly what the mirror does. A mirroring is just a repetition of what someone has just said. Usually the last one to three-ish words. And you said, could you explain mirroring? And I said, can I explain mirroring? <laughs> and what you did delightfully was give me a great in-depth response to what you were driving at. And what mirroring does, mirroring connects people's thoughts. It's used as a superior replacement for, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Which is an opening to question, starting with the word what, which is superior to, can you tell me more? Mm. Or tell me more, which a lot of people use, but those are actually a closed-ended yes question or command. Tell me more about that. That's not a question. That's a command. If we're talking through something, I'm confused about something you said, I'll mirror that because if I say, what do you mean by that? You're most likely going to repeat exactly what you just said, only louder, like an American overseas. Like if mm -hmm. I say it louder, it's going to make more sense, <laughs> right. but I'm going to use the exact same words. Well, the mirror tells somebody, I heard your words. Mm. I would love to hear more and go into much more depth. And it helps people connect. So if I'm confused about something in particular, I'll get a better answer out of you with a mirror. Or if you're talking through an extended thought and if your voice trails off at the end, if I mirror what you just said, you'll pick the thought back up and you'll add to it. So the mirror is this very innocuous, very simple tool that is actually very elegant. And it really puts a lot of positive feeling into a conversation that otherwise could have gone lost or you're using a term that I don't understand or an acronym. If you used an acronym I didn't understand, I'd mirror the acronym. And you'd say, and you'd tell me what, what it meant. And you wouldn't feel questioned. You wouldn't feel interrogated. It would have helped connect your thinking mm. and help you give me a much more broad, in-depth answer. So the mirror is just, it's not the body language mirror. It's not me sitting like you're th sitting or, right. you know, doing like this when you do like this. It's got nothing to do with body language. It's just a repetition of selected words. How do you do this? How do you have the instinct to know exactly how to say it, when to say it, and I mean, and your timing is very quick. It's not that you're spending hours thinking about how to respond to my question. How do you do that? Is it uh, it's just- It's learned. It's all learned. You know, it's, it's practice. It's wanting to, I love to learn. I've always loved to learn. Mm -hmm. I've always loved to learn how to do something better. And where I'm at now, like me and everybody that is on my team, like we can't learn enough. Right. Like we're so excited about how much phenomenal information there is out there to, mm -hmm. to get better, to communicate better, to, to have a better life and consequently have a more prosperous life. Right. And so I've always liked to learn and I've always wanted to know how to do something better. And then I, they showed me the skills and I practiced. It's, it's practice. It isn't anything more than practice. It was one of my favorite movies, Man on Fire, Denzel Washington, about kidnapping in Mexico. He tells a little girl, there's only trained and untrained. She says, I'm not a good swimmer. He says, no, you're untrained. There's only trained and untrained. There's no good or bad. There's trained or untrained. And I'm, I'm a very big believer in that. So you're experienced, and so you have instinct, and so your instinct- Your instinct is your supercomputer culminating your experiences and giving you a better answer. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got instinct. Everybody. It's do you feed it and do you listen to it? Do you think that our interaction with social media is going to hurt our instincts? Is it going to change our instincts? I just think there's a new world that has emerged, especially with young folks, where the type of experiences that, you know, you had, I had growing up with interacting with actual real people, reading body language, communicating with real humans and not avatars on social media. Is it going to be any different? And are the tools that you have come up with applicable or are they being warped by this new world of, of virtual? What part of the bell curve are you talking about? So in, in the middle of the bell curve, the biggest bunch it's not helping. 
because they are being spoon-fed what they're asking for. You know, I think Henry Ford said, if I ask people what they wanted, I'd have got them a faster horse. Right. You know, there's something about giving people what they want. If they don't know, how are they going to know to ask? Right. And the lack of human communication is holding back the success of the people in the middle of the bell curve, regardless of the generation. What we found out recently, Black Swan Group, in one of our top-tier training, we saw millennials for the first time showing up because since they'd been denied how to be better communicators, but they were top-tier performers, they had a hunger for it and they wanted more. And as soon as the top-tier performers get exposed to it, like they suck it up as fast as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. There was this thirst for it, uh, this hole in their ability that they knew was there, but they didn't know exactly what it was. Because on the schools, universities, the college campuses, they're trying to cater to what they asked for. You know, let's let's do more emails. Let's do more texts. Let's do more Zoom. Mm -hmm. You know, this generation, this they don't want to communicate in person. Right. It, it's denied the top performers, and they're aware that they're deficient. And so as soon as they stumble over it, they get good at it really fast because they can't get enough of it. Hmm. What about the issue of discernment? So much of, of your book and your tactics is about building the ability to discern, right. even understanding yeah. what is misinformation or right. what, you know, what is the person saying to you versus what the person is actually trying to say to you, right? right. So we're now entering into a new era with artificial intelligence. And we all know that with AI, there's going to be this massive issue of discerning what is true and what's falsehood. I mean, who knows? You're going to watch something and, and, and not know whether the person speaking is actually the person speaking. Right. Are there any tools that you are aware of that you think could help people discern better? Well, you're talking about critical thinking, which is just comparative thinking. Mm. You know, comparing things. Does this not add up? And it's actually always been the issue. It's just been accelerated by technology. Like when I was a kid, again, last century, you know, they used to tell us, read more than one newspaper because the newspaper is going to be biased. Yeah. So the sources today are no less biased. Or when Wikipedia first came out and everybody in college wanted to write their papers based on what was in Wikipedia. And the professors had to say, like, look, that's not a bad starting point for research but it's highly flawed. And it might not even be highly flawed. It's sufficiently flawed. Okay. So we're getting the same stuff that we got when there were only newspapers or when there was Wikipedia. It's just coming at us faster, which still requires critical thinking on your part. Mm -hmm. Still requires you to question your source. If in the 1950s, you only read one newspaper, you should have been questioning your source, comparing the New York Times with... Uh, the Economist, or whatever very different source there was. Today, it's coming at you faster if you're just taking your, your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, which, in fact, is curated towards your biases. Yes. If you don't question your source, then you're going to be an idiot. Mm -hmm. But if you do comparative sources, you're going you're gonna to see a video of a politician that you like and because they're feeding you what you want to hear, you're not going to question it. Mm -hmm. And you're going to buy in, and that politician never said that. Or you're going to see a video of a politician you don't like, and it's going to reinforce your dislike because it was curated for you. But the media in general does that. You got to take a look at what's being reported that they said versus what did they really say. Right. And that's critical thinking, and it's always been a problem for human Has beings. Has it always been a problem? Because, look, I'm somewhat of a new employer, right? I, I started running a business. We have about 150 employees. We interview people all the time. We interact with in the media. And one of my frustrations is that I feel like discernment and critical thinking is something that's very, very difficult to find. Anybody that works here at PragerU knows that my motto here is we value people who work hard and think critically right. because right. I've really developed a frustration as an employer uh, with the fact that people are lazy about thinking critically, or maybe they're not lazy about it, but maybe they can't. Or maybe the educator right. in me is asking, have we taught American kids how to think critically? And I know that you're an educator too, in many ways, right? You, you teach Harvard Business School and, and you give the seminars. 
How do we teach critical thinking? Um, I don't know that we've ever taught it well. Mm. And the, you know, really hearing what somebody said, um, one, one of the cases in a book, uh, Jeffrey Schilling kidnapping in the Philippines, mm. not quite last century, but it goes down, uh, it starts in August of 2000. And I'm just into the bureau. So the, um, Schilling gets himself kidnapped. He actually walks into the camp of the Abu Sayyaf, the terrorist group. He walks into the camp in the jungle to have an argument with him. I often say that an American getting kidnapped overseas, usually but not always, is because they did something stupid. So shocking mm -hmm. that you walk into a terrorist camp and they don't let you go, especially okay. if you went there to argue with them. Okay. So it was an unplanned kidnapping, kidnapping nonetheless, kidnapping of opportunity. The leader of the terrorist group, uh, Schilling is there with his girlfriend. Uh, he looks at Schilling, says, you're Stan, looks at the girlfriend, says, you go back to town. She goes back to town and immediately reports to the media, not my cousin is holding my boyfriend in the jungle. The Abu Sayyaf is kidnapped an American. So that's not accurate reporting. Media bites on it right away. The bad guy, Sabaya, has got a very close relationship with many people in the media because terrorism is about media coverage. Sure. So they call him on the phone because they got his number. Now, he's still trying to figure out what to do with this guy Schilling. There's been a recent kidnapping where uh, a bunch of Western Europeans were reportedly ransomed out at a million dollars per. And he says on the phone... Well, if a Western European is worth a million dollars, an American has to be worth 10 times that. The media, Manila Star, Abu Sayyaf demands $10 million for Jeffrey Schilling. Now, that is not what he said. Now, if we got into that negotiation, going on what was reported in the media, I've already shown him that I'm not listening and I'm stupid. So we took a look at what was in the paper and then we got back and we drilled into it and we started with what did he actually say? Now, this is 20 years ago. So that probably existed 20 years ago. It probably existed 20, lack of critical thinking, mm -hmm. lack of listening. Mm -hmm. Probably existed 20 years before that and 20 years before that. I think now media and social media is an accelerator we see it faster and sooner. I don't know that it's new. Hmm. Is that part of some of the courses that, that you teach? The act of listening is really how to, in the course of communication, can I go back over the conversation with you so that instead of it feeling redundant to you, you actually feel better and more listened to well, I'm actually just checking the information. Checking for understanding. That's the educational term. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm engaged in a process of critical thinking. I got to know what you really said based on the way the brain works. If I only listened and never spoke, I still wouldn't hear everything. Mm -hmm. Every time I speak, I'm going to miss what you just said. Every time I stop to think about what you just said, if you're still talking, I'm going to miss everything that you say in that moment. So passive listening is highly inefficient. Proactive listening is, is me gathering more information from you without making you feel interrogated. You actually like it. Mm -hmm. In point of fact, the more you feel listened to, the more open to influence you are. If I really want to influence you, if I make you feel heard, that will be when you are most open to being influenced, after you felt heard. And if there's some point in time when I need to influence you, I don't need you pushing back on it. Mm -hmm. I need you inclined mm -hmm. to it. Can I invite you to play a game with me? <laughs> I promise. As this long is, as it's not like slap your hands, no, you know, no, slap it, it, my it, hand it, and make me look, look silly. I, you can't take the educator out of me. So I love, I love, I love playfulness. I love playing games. Uh, okay, there is so much to learn from you and from your book, and I, I developed a game as a way to learn from you. So I love it. it's going to be a little tricky because it's a word association, basically. Right. So 
I picked a few words out of your book, and this is going to be tough. So I'm sorry, I'm an asshole. <laughs> How dare you? I'm sorry, I'm an How asshole. How dare you use I'm me on Give me. you a really, really tough game. Right. Okay, so the game's going to go like this. I'm going to read a word. You need to respond with a word association. Okay. You have about two sentences to just tell me what you think when you hear these words. Okay. All right, you ready sure. to go? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Fair. Uh, the F word. Fair is in the eye of the beholder. People usually only use it when they feel disadvantaged and they can't exactly tell you why. Is it a good word to use? Where, Chris, are you really being fair about this? No, that's a way to diminish our relationship. Chris, I want to be fair with you here. That's a way to diminish our relationship. So you don't actually love the word fair. The only way I like it is, look, anytime you think I'm, I'm treating you unfairly, I want you to stop me. Okay. Failure. No such thing. Okay. Empathy. Understanding. The word no. Safety and protection. Explain. People feel safe and protected when they say no. Is it a bad thing to use the word no? Uh, it's completely context-driven. I don't like to use no as a way to reject. Although I will, if I've warned you that it's coming, a friend of mine, Ned Clay, used to be the GM for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. Ned says, I like to let out no a little at a time. Mm. So if, if you get caught off guard by the rejection, that's on me. But if I've been warning you that there are problems, mm-hmm. and the warnings have gotten louder and louder and louder, and you choose to ignore those warnings when I reject you, that's on you. Because I've been warning you that it's coming. So uh, no in terms of rejection. Now, how do we use no so it's not rejection? I can say, do you disagree? I can say, is this a bad idea? I say, is now a bad time to talk? No, 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 it's not a bad time. It's never a bad time. Mm. It's not rejection. But I do know, we know, we know, we know. We don't have the, we have the anecdotal experience. I don't have the neuroscience to back it up. But I know that when you feel, say no, you feel safe because you protected yourself. You're not sure what you defended yourself from, but you know you defended yourself from being led into something. I get talk to business people all the time, and this seems ridiculous, and it's true. They say, well, the person we're talking to, they're in no mode. They say no, no matter what we say. Uh-huh. I'm like, awesome. Change your question. Uh-huh. What about when it comes to, let's say, children? They want a second dessert. Um, Again, how do you get your kids to think better Mm. as opposed to simply rejecting? Because I said so. Okay. You know, they want a second dessert. You're trying to teach your child. It's been shown on a regular basis that the children, children who learn um, deferred reward, and I know that's not the right terminology Mm. for it, but the kids that can learn to wait for a reward, to hesitate instead of immediately grabbing the instant instead of gratification. Grabbing the, yeah, yeah, instead of instant gratification, they'll be more successful as adults. So your child asking for an extra dessert is an opportunity for you to help them learn the deferred reward, how to, how to resist instant gratification, which is completely separate from whether or not you grant their wish. So you got, you got to get them thinking about it. So instead of, okay, mommy, I want two desserts, How about you have one now and maybe later or maybe tomorrow you'll have this other dessert that you want? Is that what you mean by deferred? How does that help you? Or how how can you have dessert without eating what's good for you? Mm -hmm. You know, begin to change the sequence of what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how they answer. What matters is did you make them think? Mm -hmm. Now, the more times you make them think things through properly, eventually they'll start coming up with the right answer. Mm. Deferred gratification. I think that was the term I was looking for. Yeah. Instead of instantaneous. So it doesn't matter how they answer right now, because if, you know, how can I let you eat dessert if you haven't eaten your vegetables? You know, you're going to get a negative response. The response is not the issue. The issue is what kind of thinking did you make them do on the way to the response? And the more that you teach them to think better, they're going to find the right answer themselves. Mm. Uh, how about the word defeat? Yeah, it's like failure. I mean, um, another person I admire a lot for a whole variety of reasons, Molly Bloom likes to say, you can't lose if you don't quit. 
Yes. Like you're never defeated if you don't quit. Correct. So right. when did you quit? Don't quit. Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody asked me recently, when do you know that you lost? And my answer was, when you accept defeat. There you go, right? So it's a psychological decision in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how about the word winning? Uh, an illusion. Mm-hmm. What was it, the famous poem, if you can treat victory and defeat and meet those two imposters the same? Fascinating. How about the word then losing? Yeah, same thing. It's 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 same. illusion. It's what's your time frame? It, you know, what's what's it part of the journey of? Like if I make a mistake, and I made some horrible mistakes, I, I still will continue to do so. You know, my belief is that if the lesson the lesson I learned from that is going to be more valuable than whatever sure. my loss was. Sure. So it's my job to learn to accelerate my life. Sure. Uh, it actually ties to my next word, which is victim. Yeah. Um, pathetic. Pathetic. <laughs> Here's one of the very few issues I have with the way the social media is reinforcing us today and bringing out the worst in us. It seems to be a race to see who could be the biggest victim. Yeah, as a victim bingo, I call yeah, it. Yeah, like victim bingo. And like, and if one group is successfully portrays himself as the victim of the year, then the, uh, some other group wants to be a bigger victim the following year. They get addicted to the attention the group gets in the short term. They pay no attention to there's no gain in the long term. Mm. Like hashtag me too. When was that? Four or five years ago. Yeah. It's by and large been obscured by everybody else wanting to be me too from their own perspective. Right. Consequently, the any of the real victims from the me too movement, and there were plenty of them, have been forgotten. Yeah, they've been also the word itself was robbed of its true meaning because Right. Yeah. yeah. So that. and and nobody's successful as a result. There's nothing about victimization or feeling like you were a victim that leads a path to success. There is no success mode out there, none, that starts with you defining yourself as a victim. Not one. Mm. And if you're really worried about having a better life, let's reject the things that have shown no avenue to success. And Mm. being a victim, there is no avenue to success there. Powerful. Uh, the word compromise. Uh, lose, lose. Lazy, stupid. Lazy, <laughs> mostly lazy. Is compromise different from middle ground? No. You hate it. Yeah, because, again, I know the mechanics. And for us to reach a middle ground, I've had to give. Hmm. And if I had to give as a human being, I'm going to feel double the loss. Mm. And I'm going to resent it. So the spirit of finding a better place, the spirit of compromise is really about the spirit of finding a better place. The spirit of finding a middle ground, the spirit of it, even the spirit of win-win, which is a term I despise, Mm -hmm. but the spirit is good. Now, I'm a practical guy, and I know what, what actually happens in implementation. What actually happens on implementation is a downward spiral of resentment. And it's because I don't want to expend the energy to find a better answer. Yeah, it's just meet in the middle and call it a day. Mm. If that worked, we would all admire the U.S. Congress. (laughs) So, but in your book, you do talk about, I guess you wouldn't call it middle ground, but maybe one would call it win-win results, which is when you're in a negotiation and you're realizing that actually there's a whole pile of new opportunity that you didn't even think about after you did the active listening. You gave a few examples of how you suddenly realized that, well, they may not be able to pay you your full speaking fee, but they're going to be able to bring you publicity that would give you more book sales, for example, right? That I would label win-win. Right. The spirit right. of win-win, finding a better outcome. Right. You know, how, how do, I, what, what are people really after? Right. Um, and, and that's, again, the spirit of win-win versus whether or not you're using the words. So in practical terms, because to me, they're, they're, what's the practical application? What shows up over and over and over again? What shows up over and over and over again is a person who's trying to exploit me will start talking win-win right away. Mm-hmm. Like, I got all the anecdotal experience that I need to know. That if you and I are sitting down and talking, you're like, Chris, I'm going to do a win-win deal with you. 
Right. What you really want is for me to do something for nothing. Mm. And you want to take me hostage to a vision of the future where there are all these riches that are at my feet if I do this for nothing. Mm. Now, all the riches that are going to be at my feet then require me to do all the work and you not to lift a finger. And all the riches that are going to be at my feet have never actually been obtained before either. I get this pitch all the time. Come to this room. It's going to be full of billionaires. There's going to be $50 million of buying mm -hmm. power, $50 billion of buying power if you just come and expose yourself to this room. <laughs> I could totally relate. That's why you should come for nothing. Right. All right. And so my question always then is, so who in the past has addressed that room and monetized it for $50 billion? And there's always crickets. <laughs> right. So, all right, is the opportunity there? Has anybody ever successfully navigated the opportunity? Or how often did somebody successfully navigate? Let's right. talk about what this really looks like. Right. And it just ain't there. Right. That's you applying your critical thinking to the offer that they're asking you to do. I think that someone could misinterpret, never split the difference, or the fact that you don't like the term middle ground with thinking, oh, well, you know, Chris Voss is just stubborn. It's his way or the highway. Uh, but actually, it's the opposite of that because so much of your negotiation is about, you know, empathy, listening. And actually, as you said, sometimes you're willing to actually you know, completely give up what you thought you even wanted because the greater sum is that ultimately a victory that is larger than what you thought you, would getting in, you were getting into, if, yeah, if that's yeah, the best yeah. way to interpret yeah. it. All right, so the next word is truth. Uh, uh, elusive uh, and the goal. And often in the eye of the beholder. And what's the perspective? Is there my truth and your truth, or is there capital T truth? No, I, I uh, well, capital T. You know, we got to we got to look up and find, see if we can find it there. But um, <laughs> you know, you're gonna you're gonna be it's gonna be true from your perspective. I mean, there was a, a metaphor a long time ago uh, talking about the world's major religions and mm. saying think of it as blind monks all at different parts of an elephant, an elephant being God, and each monk is describing what they're encountering with complete accuracy and they're all right and they're all different. Mm. So what does that mean? Uh, what's your perspective? How much can you see from your perspective and how capable of you seeing it at all? Mm. Like you can be completely accurate and inadequate simultaneously. Mm. We're going to have to have a whole show just about the word truth. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Uh, gifts. It's a huge thing in your book, gifts. Yeah, gifts. Like that's a little bit of the eye of the beholder also. Like some people are afraid of gifts because of the obligation. Some people love gifts and feel no obligation. Mm. I mean, gifts can be very effective. They're a tool. Yeah. And then how are they being used? Are they used because they're genuine? Or are they used to exploit? Mm. I prefer people that are generous somebody uh, leads with generosity with me, then I'm so taken by it, appreciative of it. So to you, gifts are tied with trust a little bit. Yeah, very much right? so. Yeah, what, what's it being used for? Right, because it, it could be used to manipulate manipulation? someone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, how about pride? Pride is current and past thinking. Okay. These days in a Black Swan group, we're really drawing a distinction over there's, what's the time frame of the word? Frustration's about the future, pride's about the past. Okay. Pride doesn't move you forward. And it's only a realization that I've come to recently because people say to me a lot, like, you must be proud of what you did. I'm like, uh, no. No? No, because where's my life going? I'm, I'm a future thinking person, present and forward. Pride's present and behind. Pride can cause you to rest on your laurels. Mm. Pride can cause you to think you've done enough. Mm. And pride can get you to stop. Mm. You know, you're not, you're not going to go any further. So for me, for example, like what I used to do with the FBI, I wasn't proud of it. I felt it was a privilege. Mm. And privilege is about the present and the future. Mm -hmm. So do you look at something as a privilege, an obligation, a duty, 
are you proud of what you've done or did what you do make you feel gratified, satisfied? Hmm. You know, each one of those emotions ties into a different place in the time continuum of our life. Mm-hmm. And while I don't have a problem with pride, it's really backward looking. Or you think it could be dangerous. It, it has its pitfalls. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can stop because you're proud of your achievements and you want to retire. You want to mm-hmm. give up. You're going to give in. Mm-hmm. Gotta be, it, it's, a, it's an interesting, the problematic aspects of pride um, are potentially slowing you down. <laughs> what about curiosity? Superpower. I love it. I completely agree. Uh, the word why? Uh, emotionally fraught typically makes people feel accused. It's an accusatory word. Mm. And it's like I get a big disagreement or a difference of opinion because we should find out people's why. We just can't ask them why. Mm. Because if I ask you why, you're going to feel accused. You're going to be, it's not going to land well. Why don't you like the word why? Because universally, globally. By the way, in that tone, it does sound bad, right? Yeah. Well, like, and we, we we're why battered. What do I, globally, what's that mean? Whatever culture you grew up in, when you were two years old, whatever your religion was, whatever your ethnicity is, when you're a little kid and you broke something, the nearest adult next to you said, why did, why you, did you do, do that? that? Yeah. And you... You learned over and over and over. It got drilled into your head that when somebody asks you why, you just made a mistake. Mm. And even as an adult, when someone does something that we disagree with, the first thing we say is, why'd you do that? Mm. Why do you want? If if you're asking me for something that I don't think you should have or you don't deserve, I'm going to say, why do you want that? I'm going to accuse you. Mm. And we don't know that that everybody's why battered. So even if I genuinely want to know why, Mm. even if I'm genuinely not accusing Mm. you, you're already battered by the word. Right. So when I use it, it's automatically going to make you defensive. And you do love the word how. And if people want to know why, they should read the rest of your book. As I think you, you, exactly. you elaborate on that. Um, how about the word adversary? That's in the eye of the beholder. And it was uh, one of the distinctions. And I learned the problematic nature of the word really. Jim Camp wrote a book in 2002 called Start With No. I learned a lot from Jim. We were colleagues. We were friends. We collaborated both when I was in the FBI and afterwards. And he used to always refer to um, whoever you're negotiating with as the adversary. Because that was Jim's nature, very assertive, alpha male, very, you know, very assertive, competitive. The adversary is a situation. So we've always tried to take the word adversary out of the uh, conversation about your negotiation counterpart Counterpart is the word you like. Counterpart, yeah, partner. Yeah, usually, yeah, most often counterpart. Probably. Wow, it's amazing that you would call the person you're negotiating with a partner. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's well, pretty profound. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank <laughs> you, yeah. and But it goes to, if we're negotiating, we're faced with different aspects of the same problem. So to come to the best possible outcome, we need to be partners. Mm. Again, if a uh, dating negotiation, we're faced with different aspects of the same desire for companionship, whether it be short-term or long-term. If we're in a business negotiation, if I'm buying and you're selling, we're faced with different aspects of the same problem, shelter, food, mm. a future, education, housing, different aspects of the same problem. Yeah. Okay, final word, fear. Ah, fear, the debilitator, the worst, the mind killer. Fear is a mind killer. Yeah. It's I, a, I, I didn't think that up, but I, and whoever said that, they were dead on mm. when they first brought it up. Fear is a mind killer. Yeah. Do what you fear, right? There's nothing. So it doesn't kill your mind. Exactly, yeah. right? Go after it. And and you're typically going to find it wasn't as bad as you thought. Mm. It was a specter of it, and yeah. it turned out to be nothing. Yeah. What advice would you give to the next generation listening to this? Um, stress, failure, you know, being unsafe, uh, whether debilitates you or strengthens you is going to be, depend completely on how you interpret it. What's the difference between adventure and ordeal? Attitude. Mm -hmm. And 
in one of Huberman's podcasts recently, he points this out where he says, stress is bad if you think it's bad. And if you think stress is good for you and it makes you stronger, it's good for you and it makes you stronger. So don't try to be safe. Try to grow. And then it's going to change everything. Things happen for you, not to you. It's how you interpret it. And if you could do that, and don't expect to always be safe. People around you should strive to make you safe. Just don't expect it. And if you get stressed, like, all right, what am I learning from this? How's this going to make me smarter, faster, stronger? If you're an athlete, you got to stress your muscles to get stronger. Mm-hmm. You can overstress them. And that, you know, no, I'm not in favor of that. But, and simultaneously, there's something out there that nobody talks about, which is post-traumatic stress growth. Mm-hmm. If you desire to grow from whatever happens to you, you're going to have an amazing life. I love it. Resilience. Resilience, exactly. Let's teach resilience to uh, the next generation. Yeah, amen. Amen. Thank you. This was great. We'll have, to do, we'll have to do another one where we talk about capital T truth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm there. You got me. Right. You had me at hello. All right. Great. <laughs>